This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, according to the Census Bureau, 54 million Americans have a disability, and more than 3 million people, 15 years or older, use a wheelchair. In celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, today on Ringler Radio, we'll take a look at the progress that's been made over the years and talk to two people who continue to make a significant difference for people with disabilities. Joining us today is my Ringler colleague and co-host, Randy Dyer. Well, we have two very special guests today, and our first guest is Gary Talbot. Gary is the Assistant General Manager for System-Wide Accessibility with the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, better known as the MBTA, and here in Boston, we all call it the T. The T operates one of the largest mass transit systems in the U.S., and that includes a vast network of bus and rail lines, including rapid bus transportation, rapid rail, light rail, and commuter rail. Before joining the T in 2007, Gary served as a senior engineer with Walt Disney World, the ride and show engineering area, where he oversaw the design and development of ride and attraction accessibility enhancements. Leading up to the ADA's 20th anniversary, Gary was also interviewed in the NFPA Journal on CNN.com, and he was also a guest at the White House for President Obama's celebration as an appointee on the Access Board by President Bush. Welcome to Ring the Radio, Gary. Thank you very much. Well, you know, it's interesting, Gary. I Being here in Boston with you, I, I take the MBT, MBTA a lot. We take the T, and uh, I think... I don't know if you have a lot to do with it, but I want to tell you that the uh, the Charlie card and the way that the the T has cleaned up its act is uh, is phenomenal. And I know we'll talk maybe a little bit more, but I'm very impressed with one thing, and that is you're renovating all the stations, really in, in concert with the with the Disability Act, because elevators are being put in and other things, and it's helping the whole community. So thanks and welcome again to Ring the Radio. Thank you. Well, our other special guest is returning for a second appearance, Andrew Imperato is the full-time president and chief executive officer of the American Association of People with Disabilities, the AAPD. The AAPD is a national nonprofit, nonpartisan membership organization of people with disabilities, their family members, and supporters. And it was founded in 1995. And I guess, Andy, you're the first uh, president and I guess the only president of that organization. I'm the first full-time. The person who founded it, Paul Hearn, uh, did it while he was running a foundation at the same time. And then we had an acting president after Paul died. So I started in 99 as the first full-time president. Well, I can certainly say that you're now the face of the AAPD for sure. And uh, Andy, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Thank you. Well, uh, Gary, Philip Rosenbaum from CNN.com did a wonderful series on the 20th anniversary of the ADA by chronicling legislation, progress, uh, and spotlighting you, really, 
And can you share with our listeners what your story is so we can uh, learn a little bit more about it? Sure. Thank you very much. And and thank you for uh, for inviting me today. Um, you know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of folks with disabilities who acquire a disability. Um, I was in a car accident in, in 1980, um, it had a spinal cord injury as a result. It had a spinal cord injury as res- as a result and um, have been a full-time wheelchair user since. Um, you know, at the time I was an auto mechanic, really enjoyed my job. The only thing I really wanted to wanted to do or wanted to be was an auto mechanic and, and own my own dealership. Um, once I got out of rehabilitation in early, in, 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 I'd say in early 1981, I figured, you know, I've got to learn now how to how to be able to twist a wrench and work on cars out of a wheelchair because I'm now a, a wheelchair user. So I trained myself. I, I rented a small facility. I kind of honed my skills because I knew how to diagnose stuff and I knew how to fix things, but I didn't know how to reach things because my reach range was so different than what it was before. And um, once I did that, then I thought, okay, now I'm ready for the marketplace. I've got all the certifications. I've got all the experience. I've got all the tools. Now I'll go find a job. And that was the first time in my life as a as a white guy to <laughs> to really experience discrimination where folks would look at you and go, I mean, I had so many people tell me that I couldn't even fill out the application. We don't want you here. We don't want somebody. My customers don't want to see a guy in a wheelchair fixing a car. So no, you're not gonna you're not filling out an application, you're not getting a job. So I didn't know what to do. It's the only way I knew how to make a living and I didn't have insurance and things like that that would cover anything. So I had to work. Um, I started my own my own company. It was called Gary's Honda Service. I specialized in Honda car repair. I did that for about six years and, and just had a blast. And unfortunately, due to health issues and things like that, I needed to find something different. So Gary's Honda kind of went away. And, and then I decided, boy, you know, I think I'll go back to school and I'll get a degree. And I'd never been a big one for school. I had always gone to trade school type things, mm-hmm. and I had learned how to how to work on cars. I read tons of manuals and things like that, but not school related things. So I had never gotten a high school degree or high school diploma. And so I started community college, and after about 145 college credits, I was accepted to University of Michigan into their engineering program. And right before I transferred in. They contacted me and they said, boy, we've got one problem. We don't see a high school transcript. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what does that matter? I've got 145 college credits. And uh, <laughs> so at the last minute, um, I had to squeeze in a GED so I could make it to University of Michigan and start my education there. Um, went to school there, met some of the most outstanding people I've ever met in my life. And they embraced my story and my life and and really supported my efforts to try and compete with a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids that were valedictorians from around the globe. And somehow I made it through the program and, and became an engineer. Well, you're talking about overcoming obstacles, not just in the wheelchair trying to maneuver down the street, but trying to get into the University of Michigan, you need a, you need to, to get your high school diploma squared away. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a battle for you, and it looks yep. like you're, uh, you've come through it very, very well. Thank you. Thank you. And, it, you know, and then after that, once I, once I graduated from college, um, you know, employment has been such a, such a wonderful thing to be able to be employed, to have a job. Uh, as a person with a disability, I, I know how blessed I am, and I know how few we are. 
Um, I've been so fortunate. I, I got hired by General Motors right out of school, which was my dream job. Uh, went from there to uh, to Disney World, and 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 then from there up to the MBTA. So uh, so life is good. Well, absolutely, and it's a it's a great inspiring story, Randy. Uh, Andy, you and I uh, uh, first met when you uh, took over the AAPD uh, more than ten years ago. I can uh, I can remember the challenges you were faced with then. Uh, and you have just done a fabulous job in uh, in building up that wonderful organization. Um, when AAP when when ADA uh, was first enacted, uh, the arguments against it were that it was too costly to comply with, and that it would lead to uh, litigation. Uh, I imagine you hear some of those arguments even today. How, how do you respond? Well, you know, I, I think um, you know there are a lot of ways to look at. A civil rights law. I mean, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's kind of restating first principles for this country, the idea that everybody should have an equal opportunity and an equal, you know, access to the American dream. And for me, that's what the ADA stands for. And you can look at it in terms of, you know, what does it cost to provide a particular accommodation? What does it cost to put it in an elevator? What does it cost to, you know, buy some assistive technology for somebody who needs it? Or you can look at what does it cost to not do any of those things. And from my perspective, you know, for for decades in this country, we have built uh, things that were not accessible for a big chunk of the population. We have an aging population that is going to be taking advantage of all the accessibility features that the ADA has brought us. And imagine, you know, as these population ages, if we didn't have all the improvements that we've had over the last 20 years, We've, we would have a lot of folks, our, our parents, our grandparents, uh, who would be stuck at home, unable to get around their communities, might be forced to go into a nursing home before they want to. Um, and, you know, so from my perspective, uh, you got to look at it in terms of cost-benefit. I would argue anything we've spent around compliance with the ADA was an investment that has had a return and that return is benefiting our economy. So I, I don't I don't see the ADA as a net negative. I see it as a net positive. Well, well, Andy, with the you know t- you talked about how it improves the economy or helps the economy, but you know we're now living in what we call a down economy. How has this down economy affected programs for the disabled? Well, you know, and Gary can certainly comment on this. You know, from his perspective, working you know in, in a in a transportation environment, my. My impression is that whether you're talking about transportation, whether you're talking about human services, um, we, we, people with disabilities have been harmed dramatically by this economy. We've, we've got uh, a lot of folks who've been laid off from jobs. Uh, state Medicaid programs are kind of, you know, doing draconian cuts in home and community-based services and supports that people need to live and get around their communities. And I know that there's a crisis in, in funding for transit, which is the primary way that people with disabilities get around. So, you know, from my perspective, we're kind of on the front on the front lines of of uh, the cuts and the fights that are going on at the state level and at the national level. And um, you know, I, I feel like uh, the Obama administration is trying to use the ADA to push back against some of these states, particularly the Olmstead decision. And I think they're doing everything they can to try to help. But this is probably the scariest time economically that I've lived through 
And I know that there's a lot of pain and a lot of bad things happening around the country that's being blamed on the economy. Well, no question. Gary, let me piggyback on that. I would assume that the funding for the renovations being made to the Boston uh, MBTA you know, subway system was authorized back when times were better. And uh, I guess I'd ask you this question. If, if this process of trying to get funding for this was started today in this economic environment, how tough would it have been? Well, that's a that's a great question. I think, um, you know, a, a couple of things. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, what you see today that is a new newly renovated station like Copley. Yes, Copley's going to be done in just a short amount of time. The, all those plans, all the funding for that, and everything else went in years ago, long before I got here. And so you're right. Now looking forward, we still have a lot of work to do. I have 37 commuter rail stations that are inaccessible today. Mm-hmm. I have almost 30. Green Line stations, the oldest subway system in the nation that are inaccessible today. To me, that is just, to have one is unacceptable. This is 2010, and as Andy stated, I mean, this is a primary means of transportation and really the opportunity for so many folks to have that bite of the apple. If they don't, if they can't get from their home to school, they don't get the engineering degree. They don't get any degree. Right. Um, So it's, it's critical. And now looking forward, it's it's just a daunting task because every state is upside down financially. Every transit provider we're carrying eight point one billion in debt with our with our debt service load. It's a roughly four hundred million dollar per year payment off the top of our budget just to support the debt. And and so how do you add more debt onto that? Well, you don't. And that means from a capital expenditure, you're not going to do a whole lot yourself. The only way we can do it is with state support and with federal support. The stimulus dollars have, have helped us tremendously. We're getting some things done that otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. But stimulus is almost over from yeah. a, we're not planning new stimulus projects. It's going to so run out. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to run out. What do you do next? That's the challenge. Randy? Well, and I, I think, you know, this whole discussion is a reminder of why people with disabilities and disability advocates need to pay attention to bigger, you know, macroeconomic issues and political issues. You know, there were fights at the beginning of the Bush administration about whether it was a good idea to pass the tax cuts that were his top domestic policy priority when he took office. And people with disabilities had a huge stake in those fights, but to a large degree, we didn't participate. Um, there are fights going on right now around a debt commission and, you know, how we're going to deal with structural debt in this country. We have a ton at stake in that issue, and there's nobody on the commission representing the interests of people with disabilities. So, you know, from my perspective, um, we're we're kind of in the middle of ideological battles and macroeconomic trends that are playing out globally, and we have a lot at stake. But I don't always feel like we're actual participants in those debates. And we're uh, we're very fortunate to have, uh, I think, both of your perspectives on the on the call today. Uh, Andy looking sort of from, at the issues from the top down and Gary kind of where the rubber meets the road. So let me ask you both from your perspective, uh, from each of your perspectives, uh, what, are the, what are the biggest issues facing people with disabilities today? Gary, you want to go first? Sure, sure. If I could, thank you. Um, you know, I, I still think that we're, we're kind of stuck in a, in, a, in a 20-year spot, maybe even longer, maybe a 30-year spot. And, and, and I would say it two ways. The expectations that our community have has of ourselves needs to be ele- needs to be elevated significantly, and I think we've struggled with that for so long. I mean, just the idea of 
getting an education or or getting a job, getting a skill set so you can market yourself and become an employee and pay taxes and those kinds of things. I think our community needs to focus more on that. At the same time, I think it's a it's a, a countrywide issue, a federal issue that I, I, I really believe it's time for the federal government to to step up from, you know, they we say that they're a model employer and they, they look for employees with disabilities. And I think some good things have happened. But at the same time, I don't think enough has happened and enough emphasis is placed on that. So, so often what you have with people with disabilities is they're, they're at the lowest rung of the economic ladder. They're not able to climb back up the ladder because they just don't get those opportunities. We're still the one segment of the population where it's okay to discriminate. Folks can do it whether they build a building incorrectly today or they build a transit system incorrectly today or they just tell you that they don't want you there by not having you back and you don't get the opportunities. If we expect ourselves to do more and if society expects us to be those full partners, then I think a lot of the funding issues are going to be more difficult to to be able to pass by. The reason that I believe they, they're allowed to pass by like they are today is because we just don't expect much and we're the mm-hmm. ones that... You know, we're the first to cut always, and and we're the ones with the with the the lowest voice. We find out after the fact. So it actually comes back to what Andy mentioned about ad- advocacy. You, you know, you need those advocates like the organization he represents to really be out there fighting in those uh, in those places where those decisions are being made. Absolutely, Andy. How, well, what's I, your I perspective? I also think we need to be organized. Uh, as a political constituency and as a voting bloc. And that was really the reason that AAPD was created in 95. And, you know, I think the Internet has come along and transformed a lot of aspects of our lives. But one of the things that, that we've been inspired by at AAPD was the way that the Obama presidential campaign was able to use the Internet to connect with people all over the country and to connect them with each other. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do at APD. I completely agree with Gary's point that one of our challenges is that we don't have high enough expectations for ourselves mm-hmm. and the key influencers in our lives, whether it's our spouse, you know, our parents, our, our siblings, our best friend. Many times our key influencers also don't have high enough expectations. So, you know, that's, that's an attitude thing. That's not something you change by legislation. But the thing that I have found that's worked best is the whole peer support concept. When when you're a person with a disability and you're around other people with disabilities and they have high expectations for themselves and they have high expectations for you, it's hard for that not to rub off on you. Um, and that you know that's something that we try to promote at APD. The Internet can help with that, but it helps even more if you can actually be with people in person and have those communities around the country where you're connecting with people at independent living centers and other environments like that and see what's possible and have people at a peer level walk you through what's possible in terms of what you can hope to achieve in your own life. Yeah, and I I would assume also that to influence some of those groups, uh, high-profile individuals who are having disability issues uh, are helpful, like the football player who becomes a quadriplegic and is now uh, able to go into uh, Congress and, and, and talk about some of those needs. Let's Let's move on to something else. And I think I think all of you, both of you rather, have touched on it, the, the kind of the area of discrimination uh, against the disabled. Uh, give us an example, Gary, of, of where you felt discrimination along the way. I know you talked about 
uh, trying to get into school and some of the things that were happening, but and trying to reach for the tools. But where where did you uh, where have you felt discrimination as you as you've gone through your life uh, in that chair? Boy, I'll tell you, that's uh, you know, it's a it's a tough question to answer because there's just so many things that come to mind. I think you know, oftentimes discrimination isn't it doesn't happen because somebody set out to do that. They they did something that they felt was the right thing to do, and it just impacted you a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be the building that's not accessible. It can be, you know, somebody that completely forgot that the media that they're generating, the hard copy or whatever the case may be, needs to be accessible for folks who are blind or people who are deaf, whatever the issue might be. And And, and so we all experience those things every day. You know, you think about a person who's deaf that tries to use a system that's audio only. You know, we've got all these new technologies now. Technology is such a friend of people with disabilities, but oftentimes it's just forgotten. Um, so I, I would answer it that I think all of us, the broad spectrum of people with disabilities have, have you know, really experienced almost on a daily basis things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Boston area, Massachusetts in general, you know, wonderful, wonderful place, almost the birth, birthplace of our nation and lots of old buildings, lots of things you can't go to. You know, it's amazing to me in 2010 that I can't be real, um, you know, just just say, boy, I want to go here. I want to go there with my wife. I have to think about it. I have to plan ahead. If I think I'm going to get on that tour, I've got news for you. I'm not going to get on the tour. Um, there's all kinds of things like that, that for me as a person with a disability, it's very unusual, and, and, and I'm not used to that because for 25, 26 years in, in different states, in Florida and in Michigan, it's a newer it's, – it, everything's newer there than it is in the Northeast, and so you really don't experience it that much. But I, I don't think there's the recognition of, of how that really plays with people with disabilities and what impact it has on them. No question. Well, that's, that's interesting. Andy, do you have anything to add? Just a quick story. You know, we do a summer program where we bring 10 college students with disabilities to D.C. every summer, uh, and we place uh, them on the Hill working for members of Congress. And I was trying to place uh, one of our interns last year who was deaf, and I went to her member of Congress, member of the House of Representatives, and was talking to the intern coordinator. It was a young woman um, in the office. She was very excited about this candidate, said she sounded great. And then I said, I just want you to know that she's deaf and she would need a sign language interpreter, you know, for things like staff meetings and, you know, just needs to be able to um, understand the communications that are going on in the office. And, you know, the the intern coordinator said to me, and she knew who I was, she had my business card, she knew what I did for a living, but she said to me, excuse my ignorance, but what would a deaf person do in a congressional office? <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, the, the kinds of discrimination that still play out, particularly in the workplace, um, oftentimes are just so off the charts, it's it's hard to even imagine that people still think that way. But it really boils down to ignorance. There's still a lot of ignorance about a lot of different disability issues. You know, you may know issues for people in wheelchairs. That doesn't mean you know deaf issues. doesn't mean you know, uh, you know, access issues for blind people or people with mental health disabilities or intellectual disabilities. So I think we still have a lot of work to do just in terms of basic education. No, no question. You know, we're coming up against a break here. But uh, what I want to do before we do that, Gary, is just give you an opportunity to tell us about the MBTA and how you've changed the policies there and transformed 
maybe the training program and, and just the policies around the MBTA's uh, ability to access uh, for disability folks with disability. Tell sure. us about that. Sure. Well, when I joined the T in um, in May of 2007, I, I was very fortunate because the the T had been sued for ADA violations, and part of the settlement agreement created my position. So as a result, I worked very closely with our Boston Center of Independent Living and the executive director there, Bill Henning, and we have a a judge, a retired Superior Court justice from the Commonwealth, that is our our court appointed monitor that oversees the settlement. So in one of my early meetings with them. We just kind of did a brainstorming session. Well, what's what are the issues at the T? Where should I focus? I mean, I've got fixed route bus and and bus rapid transit and and rail and all the other stuff. Where should I focus my energy? We had a bus system where people with disabilities couldn't get on. We had folks who were blind that were being driven by. We had wheelchair users that were sitting at the at the bus stop and the bus drivers would drive by or they'd stop and say, you know, the equipment's broke, my bus is full, whatever. And people were just, they couldn't even use the system. So that's where we focused our energy first. I was very fortunate at Disney. I had just completed a, over an overview of all of the policy and procedures around fixed route bus for Disney. So I took all the lessons learned from Disney and applied that to, uh, to the MBTA. And then with the staff that I hired and the new folks that I have, there, there's such an outstanding group of people. Uh, together, we devised a plan. We we redid all of the policies. We really embraced the bus operations folks and brought them in and, and, and let them really weigh in on what we were trying to do. They, at first, were a little bit hesitant. And, and over time, over a little bit of time, they started to embrace what we were trying to do. We did, for the first time, step-by-step procedures, and even, even role-playing, where the, the bus driver is supposed to pull up uh, parallel to the curb, kneel the bus, drop the ramp, all those things. Well, what do you do if the bus stop is blocked with an illegally parked vehicle? We, You negotiate with the person, I'll meet you halfway down the block, can you make it down to there? All those issues. And I think for the first time, the bus operators felt that somebody was really trying to teach them how to win, how they could be successful and feel good about what they were doing. We paid a, a ton of attention to securements. We bought five different style uh, wheeled mobility devices, two scooters, a three-wheel and four-wheel scooter, two different style power chairs, one that's almost impossible to secure. And then we we purchased a bunch of these, um, they're Q-strain straps that, that enable you to strap around structural members of a chair. And then we did training sessions and brought all 2,000 bus drivers in, and we trained them all with one full day of ADA training. And half of that day was spent on the two different style buses that we have. The end result was, just to give you an example, um, we were about 19% of the time in a previous study for the lawsuit that we applied four securement straps, which is required, to a wheeled mobility device. 19% of the time, we had four. Vast majority of the time, we never put any on, maybe just one or two, something like that. After the training was rolled out, the first study that we did, we were at 83% four straps. And what it taught me was that vast majority of our workforce, these are good folks. They have the toughest job in Boston. They just weren't trained. They it. just weren't trained. They didn't know what to, they didn't know what to do. They'd get frustrated. They'd look at something and say, "Well, how am I supposed to know how to do that? I've got a bus full of people." You know, and then they'd say, "You know, the equipment's broke or something like that." Well, you know, that's it, it's a big effort. You can you can see just listening to you, it's a huge effort and uh, the fact that you were able to make that happen is uh, is a real uh, a real feather in your cap. And when I say cap, 
I have to say, when you came to the MBTA from Disney, did you have to wear those mouse ears for a while? <laughs> that must have looked pretty funny in Boston, I'll tell you. Well, let's take a quick break right now and come back in a minute with our two special guests, Gary Talbot and Andy Imperato. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families. And one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Ringler Radio, and glad you joined us today. I've been uh, joined here by my colleague, Randy Dyer and by our special guests, Gary Talbot and Andy Imperato. And we're certainly talking about the whole area of uh, disabilities and where we've come as we celebrate this anniversary of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. So, Andy and Gary, let me ask you both, what do you say to those who still are out there arguing against the ADA? Andy, why don't you begin? Well, first I would just say there aren't as many ADA critics today as there were when I came to Washington in 93. I I feel like um, we've done a pretty good job over 20 years of, you know, helping to address a lot of the criticisms and concerns that people had when the law first passed and when it was a new concept. If anything, there's more and more global interest in the ADA, and there are lots of other countries that are actually trying to learn from the American experience because they want to be able to provide the kind of opportunities for their population with disabilities and their senior citizens that we've been able to provide in this country um, but, you know, I, I think the biggest argument that, that we hear really boils down to people don't like the federal government telling 
small businesses and telling uh, state governments what they have to do. It, it really boils down to what's the appropriate role for the federal government. And I just find it interesting that, you know, there's a whole movement in this country right now that keeps saying that they're constitutionalists. But I think a lot of those folks miss the point that, you know, the ADA is really just a restatement of the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution. The idea is that, you know, any American should have equal access to what other Americans have access to, and they shouldn't be denied access because of some characteristic that they have no control over. And, um, you know, so from my perspective, uh, the criticisms really are about whether it's appropriate for the federal government to, to establish a baseline of civil rights that can't be violated by small employers or by, you know, state and local governments. And, you know, I, that's an ideological fight that's bigger than disability, but I think we get swept up into it. Right. Well, Gary, how, Andy talks about the the argument about the, should the federal government be so all-encompassing in this process. But for a small businessman, doesn't it come down to money more than anything else? I mean, they might they might use that as the argument that the federal government shouldn't be telling us what to do or how to how to make our facility uh, look different. But it's all—it's really money that's the driving force why a businessman potentially would say, "I don't want to fix this bathroom in this way." Right? I mean, is that how it how it seems to you? You know, yeah, I would agree with that. I think the, um, you know, to me, it does always come down to money. So how do you how do you wash it with that small business person that, you know, they have to do something different to the inside of their their yeah. structure, their their office space, whatever the case may be, a bathroom. You know, to me, I guess I look at it like this: it it is civil rights legislation. That's what this was. And because it's civil rights legislation, my answer to them is, if their business case did not include proper accessibility, they never had a business case. So they were trying to float a business on a on a budget or on a plan that really never existed. Because had we turned that around and said, well, could you have a bathroom where you only allowed persons of a certain race to enter the bathroom? Well, of course not. You wouldn't allow that. And that person would probably agree with that. But as soon as you say it's got to be large enough for someone with a disability and it's got to meet ADA code, folks get upset because they think that's money that they're spending extra that they shouldn't have to spend. When the, in reality, they never had a business case if they weren't going to do that because it is civil rights. Right, and you know, you, you, to be you know, to, to to look at it from their perspective, you know, I've heard one small businessman say, "I'm spending all this money to change this the way this building looks." In, in their eyes, it was for a very small segment of the population. So that, that I think, became an issue, and I'm sure you're fighting against that all the time. Randy? Listen, the, uh, the ADA is 20 years old now. 20 years is generally considered to be a generation politically. Uh, have we made a generation's worth of progress in those 20 years? I'm going to ask you both that question. If, if I could jump in, uh, I, I think we've made tremendous progress. Uh, you know, that said, it, it, it reminds me of uh, – of kind of my task at the MBTA. I think we've made progress and we have a million miles to go. And that's what I would say about the ADA. I think we have, we, we, I'm a product of that. Um, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have got an education and a job. And, and I think there's many of us that can point to the ADA and say, that's why I, I can do that. I can get on public transportation, but that doesn't mean that the job is done. There's much, much more to do. And I, I agree with that. I think we've made tremendous progress, particularly in the built environment, the telecommunications infrastructure, um, you know, the bus systems and transit systems of this country are dramatically more accessible than they were 20 years ago. 
um, I think the progress in, in public attitudes has been slower to change, and I do think that that's the kind of thing that changes generationally. And it's not simply legislation that changes it. It's it's a whole new generation of young people who've grown up with high expectations for themselves, who are entering the workforce for the first time, and you know are not willing to accept second class status. So you know, from my perspective, uh, we're at the beginning of an exciting you know era in this country where we're expanding opportunities for everyone. Um, you know, the, the economic downturn, I think, is, is creating barriers and problems. I'm hoping those are short-term problems. And, I, you know, I really do have a lot of faith in this generation of young people who I've gotten to know through our internship program. They have very high expectations for themselves, and I think they are going to change our culture and our society and our workplaces in ways that may be hard for us to imagine right now. Let me let me uh, kind of combine a few areas of, of question into into one for you. And it has to do with how the administration is is dealing with the whole ADA arena, how, how you feel about the Obama administration's uh, pursuit of, of your goals, and, and really under your leadership, both at the MBTA and in, at the ADA, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from people as to, uh, as to how you're doing? Are, are you getting feedback that that people are the real life people that you deal with every day. That they're feeling the impact in a positive way, and and how's the administration working on it? Why don't you tackle that, Andy? All right. Well, obviously, I won't speak to the MBTA part of it, but you know, from my perspective, the president, um, you know, came into office with a lot of challenges, and he picked some some pretty significant battles, starting with the stimulus bill, moving on to health care reform. If you look at the stimulus bill, there was a lot in that bill that was specifically targeted to help people with disabilities in terms of bolstering the Medicaid program, bolstering special education funding, bolstering uh, vocational rehabilitation funding, transportation funding. Um, you know, people can argue about whether that was implemented well, particularly on the education side. I've heard a number of people express concerns that the money wasn't spent in a way that directly benefited students with disabilities. But I think the leadership from the Obama administration on the stimulus and on health care reform uh, created significant advancements for people with disabilities. Health care reform, getting rid of pre-existing condition exclusions, getting rid of lifetime caps on benefits, uh, having a new provision for long-term care funding. There's just a lot in that bill that I think over time, if it's implemented properly, will dramatically improve, you know, employment outcomes and health outcomes for people with disabilities. Um, you know, I think we would like to see the administration have um, more of a kind of organizing theme for what they're doing for people with disabilities. It seems like they have initiatives all over the place, but they haven't kind of pulled it all together, and they're not talking about it uh, in a consistent way. So I think that's that's an area where there's room for improvement. But I think we have a lot of very strong leaders throughout the administration who are making disability a priority. And I would really call out the Attorney General and the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, who I think are doing a very good job for us, really an unprecedentedly good job for us. And I would call out the Office of Personnel Management, who is showing a lot of leadership under John Barry and Christine Griffin, a former Bostonian. Um, you know, they're really doing a lot to try to up the ante around federal hiring. Well, and I'm sure that Eric Holder is hearing uh, from you and the ADA all the time. Well, Gary, what about how do you feel the MBTA is uh, 
well, has been doing under the under your leadership in this area, and what kind of response have you heard from the people? Boy, I, I'll tell you. I think on the on the transportation side, I can speak, and I think the um, the funding has helped us tremendously. So a lot of the stimulus funding that we received, we were able to do projects we wouldn't have been able to do. We were able to pull some money aside and use for targeted um, ADA type uh, accessibility projects. A tremendous, tremendous win there. What I'm hearing from the folks that we serve every day um, is that we're getting better. We're doing a lot of things better. Our stations are cleaner. The trains are are cleaner. The trains are running more on time. The doors are functioning better. The elevators, elevators and escalators in our system, it's an interesting fact. We used to be one of the worst in the nation, maybe on the globe, as far as our, our elevator uptime. How many hours per day? We're open 20 hours a day. How many hours per day does an elevator actually function and is available to be used? Prior to, to, to my coming to the T, that was the first thing that they tried to address. And they, they restructured the contract and really focused on elevator and escalator access. Because if you can't get in the station, it doesn't matter really what you're doing on the train or the platform or in the station because you can't get down there. Right. We have about 165 elevators in our system, almost the same number as New York City. New York City carries about 10 million people a day. We carry about 1.3, 1.4. So you can see that, I mean, we've got a ton of elevators. Yeah. Our elevator uptimes today are in about 99.7% of the time, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And we've sustained it for about two years that we've held those numbers. What that means is we completely transformed the system. So for the first time in, in anybody's lifetime, people with disabilities are able to just go and jump on the T and not worry about elevators being out because they're all working. Yep. Now, it takes money, and it takes a commitment from the T to be able to do that. Without some of those federal dollars to help us do that, those opportunities slide by, and there's nothing you can do. You can't print the money. And that kind of piggybacks back to where Andy was talking about how the administration is so important and uh, how getting the message out is, is very critical. Randy? Andy, it sounds like uh, uh, things have uh, been going well. We're talking about the past. Let's talk about the future. Tell us what's, uh, what's the top priority for AAPD in the coming year. Well, you know, I go back to our mission. We were created to organize the disability community defined broadly so that we would have more power politically, socially, and economically. And I think, you know, economic well-being is our goal. You know, the vast majority of people with disabilities in this country are still living in poverty. And, and I know, Randy, you know, you all know this. One of the reasons I like the structured settlement model is that's a long-term payment stream that has no disincentives for people who want to go out and get a job and add to those payments. And I think we need to transform our entitlement programs so that they operate more like structured settlements so that people can get a baseline of support from the government and they can go out and add to that. That's what, you know, service-connected disabled veterans have. That's what people with structured settlements have. And we should provide that for other people with long-term disabilities. And that's not the way our current system works. So to me, the big challenge is economic well-being, changing our entitlement programs, and building the political power within our movement so that we have the power to fight the battles that we're going to need to fight in order to do that. Gary, what's your goals at uh, MBTA for the coming year? Boy, I'll tell you, my goals are, are pretty simple, and it's to, to find the funding necessary to identify. We've already identified the projects that need to be done. 
what we next need to do is find that funding that we can link up to those link up to those prioritized projects. Um, again, when you have 37 commuter rail stations, commuter rail plays such an important role in this region for for personal transportation, public transportation, and likewise the Green Line. The Green Line is such a connection in Boston. To not be able to get on and off every stop is unacceptable. So we've we've done our homework. We've we've got our lists. We need a lot of money. And we need a lot of support. And and so my goal for the year coming is to, you know, maybe take one or two of the commuter rail or one or two mm-hmm. of the Green Line stations and say every year if we can just find funding for these, then I can start setting a sunset date and say on this day, the T will be 100% accessible. Well, you know, those are great goals. And, and before we close, let me just say one thing that I've certainly noticed uh, being in Boston with, with the way you've, you've handled the T. You know... You may have designed the elevators and the ramps for the, for the disabled, but what you really find is it's opened up a whole community for, let's say, mothers with ch- wheeling ch- children in, in, in carriages and uh, people with all kinds of, maybe the old elderly and others. So I think that's the real key. The benefits to the community at large that have come from the maybe the fixes that the disabled have required are huge, and they, they they broaden the whole spectrum of how people can really react and benefit from what you're doing. So with both of you here, I'd just like to say thank you again for joining us. Uh, Gary, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Probably the best way to reach me is by email, and it's gtalbot, T-A-L-B-O-T, at mbta.com. Great. And uh, Andy, how about yourself? Uh, same thing. Uh, email is best for me, and it's my first uh, initial and my last name. So, A Imperato, I M P A R A T O at A A P D dot com. And I'm also on Facebook under Andy Imperato and on Twitter at Andy A A P D. That's great. Now, Randy, are you on Twitter? <laughs> no, but I follow uh, Andy on uh, Facebook. It's uh, it's fascinating. Well, I recommend it to everyone. That's good. And I'm. I just want to tell everybody that they can reach Randy uh, like they can every Ringler associate on RinglerAssociates.com. All of us are there with our uh, phone numbers and our addresses and our, our emails. And uh, for every Ringler radio show, you can also access them on RinglerAssociates.com or on LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can even download them from iTunes. Put them on your iPod and uh, listen as you walk or wheel around the park. Well, I'll tell you, Gary and Andy, it's been a pleasure. Randy, thank you for joining us as co-host today. Thank you, Larry. And uh, all the rest of you out there who've been listening, go out and have a great day. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. In its sixth year on Legal Talk Network, with over a half a million listeners, Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. <laughs>